Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 315, Truth Intention. In this third and final episode on the cross, Steve considers three historical views of what Jesus' descent into hell was all about. I've got a lot of notes tonight, and I don't know any time in this series that I've spent as much time studying and preparing as I have for tonight. And again, part of that is a a product of this being a topic that I've never ever taught on before. Um, And part of that is it's been a remarkable uh, couple of weeks, especially this past week of the Lord just speaking to me. Even before all my friends came for dinner, um, I, I just had been kind of working away and I went out for a walk and he just was downloading even more. So I, that's why I prayed that, that the Lord would really give us grace. He'd help me to share some of what is I've never said before. And so hopefully some of it might even make sense. Um, this group, we eat together, which I love. I do the teaching and then we usually spend some time uh, in prayer, um, some responsive psalms. We, we pray every week one of the creeds. The Apostles' Creed says, He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, He ascended into heaven. I want to begin tonight with a quote. There's going to be a lot of scripture and a, some quotes going back, oh golly, uh, eight, more than 1,800 years, some of them. But I want to begin with a quote from an Orthodox bishop and historian who said this, the descent, um, Bishop Alfayev, by the way, uh, the descent of Christ into Hades is one of the most mysterious, enigmatic, and inexplicable events in the New Testament history. In today's Christian world, this event is understood differently. Liberal Western theology rejects altogether any possibility for speaking of the descent of Christ into Hades, literally, arguing that the scriptural text on this theme should be understood metaphorically. The traditional Catholic doctrine insists that after death on the cross, Christ descended to hell only to deliver the Old Testament righteous from it. However, many church fathers and liturgical texts of the early church of the Orthodox Church repeatedly underline that having descended to hell, Christ opened the way to salvation for all people, not only the Old Testament righteous. The descent of Christ into Hades is perceived as an event of cosmic significance involving all people without exception. They also speak about the victory of Christ over death, the full devastation of hell. Now, how can these two points of view be reconciled? What was the original faith of the church, and what do early Christian sources tell us about the descent of Christ into Hades? So there's that quote is the framework for where we're going tonight. Christ's descent into Hades, or hell, and we'll explain the difference in the term later, but it was universally accepted by the church for over the first 800 years. Um, 
It was consistently taught and proclaimed through the liturgy of the church. It was often called the harrowing of hell or the harrowing of Hades. But for most of us who are part of the evangelical tradition, this is something we've never been taught about. So tonight, we're going to look at some scriptures. We're going to do a short overview of what the church fathers had to say about this. We're going to briefly look at our terminology of Sheol, Hades, Hell. And we're going to look at three primary historical views of Christ's descent and what it means for us. So we're going to probably have to walk fast. So let's talk to begin with with the scriptures, the descent of Christ in the scriptures. Christ's descent into hell, Hades, Sheol, can be found in both the Old and New Testament. It it forms part of the whole arc of uh, the biblical narrative of how God saves us through Jesus Christ. Hell can be understood as the holding place where the souls of the good and the bad went after death. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. We'll talk a little more about that later. Hades is to be distinguished from Gehenna, which is the place of eternal torment. And we'll get to that later, too. The two most explicit scriptures in the New Testament are... 1 Peter 3, 18-21 Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring us safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit, so he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago, when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I probably just put in more than I needed to there. But if you see that in verse 19, Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. The other very explicit verse is also in 1 Peter. It's uh, chapter 4, verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead, so that though they had been judged in the flesh, as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. So now let's look a little bit at Old and New Testament scriptures. And there's lots, um, but I want to give you a context for the Old Testament. I've been teaching you since, since that first podcast series on John that, um, that Christ is the interpretive key to the Old Testament. In this series at the beginning, we talked about Christ before time, then we talked about Christ in the Old Testament. Probably some of you remember that. Christ is the interpretive key to the Old Testament. I wish the church knew that. Um, it, would, it would help settle out a lot of things. There's a number of passages that refer to Sheol, which is exactly equal to Hades. It's just the first word. Sheol is, is Hebrew, Hades is Greek. They're synonymous. And that is the place of waiting for the dead. Um, I was thinking about it as I was walking today in Psalm uh, 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or Sheol, or let your Holy One experience corruption. In fact, 
Peter quoted that in Acts 2, the Pentecost sermon, right? Um, the second Old Testament scripture is a little longer, but, but write it down. Psalm 107, 10 to 16. Keep remembering what I said. Christ is the interpretive key to the Old Testament. 107, 10 to 16. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, uh, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has shattered the gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. Song of Solomon. Remarkable book. Orthodox Jews refer to it as the Holy of Holies. There's so many verses in there that are among my collection of favorite verses. But near the end, chapter 8, verse 6, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Think of this in terms of Christ. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flames of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Hosea thirteen fourteen. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O Sheol, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Do you notice the stress there on the victory of Christ over Satan? We talked a lot about Christus Victor last week. This, the, it's, it, this week has been many things for me, but one has just raised up my awareness of the victory of Christ, of Christus Victor, of the, of the triumphant, victorious Christ through the descent into hell. Psalm, uh, pardon me, Isaiah 25, 6 and 7. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. That's the kind of imagery that Isaiah uses a lot. Um, look at uh, Isaiah, oh, suddenly I've forgotten if it's chapter 2 or chapter 4. Uh, it's paralleled in Micah, this, this whole imagery. But, but let's carry on. For on this mountain... He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Isaiah 25, 6-8. Paul references both of these passages, the Hosea and the Isaiah one, 
uh, in, as he comes to that great climax on the resurrection chapter, which is 1 Corinthians 15. We'll get into some of that next week as we talk about the resurrection. But it's an incredible chapter, really long chapter, and it builds to this climax. And he's drawing exactly from those two passages when he writes, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You see again Paul's emphasis on the victorious Christ. Now let's look at a few verses in the New Testament. There's a number of New Testament texts that, while they're open to dispute, They've been traditionally understood as referring to Christ's descent into Hades. And if so, then they're clear signs that, that, um, that one kind of death isn't final. As uh, N.T. Wright says, life after life after death. And this gets us back to another theme that you guys have had to listen to me say for a long, long time. The scripture is not two-dimensional. It's multi-dimensional. It's multi-layered. We just saw a little hint of it there with some of those Old Testament scriptures, right? Could you see how Christ began to reveal the Old Testament? So understand in the New Testament, one can look at it just literally, as I've said all along, two-dimensionally, or one can begin to understand a depth of meaning and a, and a uh, often a multi-layered meaning. So here's a few of them. Matthew 12:40. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. That's Matthew 12:40. Matthew 27, 51 and 52. Just then the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split apart, and the tombs were opened, and the bodies of many saints who had died were raised. They came out of the tombs after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now it's Matthew 27, 51 and 52. Acts 2, 31. Just a few verses later to what I referenced out of Peter's... Um, sermon on the day of Pentecost. He said, David, by foreseeing this, spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his body experience decay. This is a critical one here, which is Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. I've never had a night where I've given you as many scriptures in a row and as much stuff, but rather than me trying to convince anybody of anything, I just want to lay out the scriptures and I want to lay out the historical uh, position of the church. Okay? So that's why you're getting lots of scriptures tonight. Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. Paul clearly expresses Christ's descent and its purpose. He said, When he, Christ, ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. 
What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. For the sake of time, just make a note if you're making notes. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Again, speaks of by his death, he broke the power uh, of death and that holds people. Okay? Just for time's sake, you can look that up yourself. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Here's the last one for this section. There are many, but I had to decide just how many I could <laughs> introduce you to at once. And here's one we probably all know. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. As a good friend of mine says, he always asks people, what do you think Jesus did with those keys? <laughs> so now, I want to shift a little bit from the scripture of which I just gave you a fraction to the church tradition. As I've said many times, uh, those of us who come from a Protestant tradition, um, those of us who come from an evangelical or a Reformed tradition, we tend to look at church history as beginning with the Reformation, 1517. I said last week I'm reading a marvelous biography on Martin Luther right now. But um, it's like we forgot about the first 16 centuries. And I've told you that before. So I want to take us back to the giants, the fathers and mothers, the leaders, the only leaders of the only church for 800 years, okay? And I'm just going to give you a little bit. I have no idea how many I have read about in the last few weeks. But here we go. The church fathers. Christians in both the West and the East clearly affirmed the descent into hell the victory of Jesus over death, and either the liberation of saints from the realm of the dead or the total liberation of all humans from the power of death and hell. All church fathers agreed, without exception, Christ descended into Hades. Some said he descended for the Old Testament. We'll get into this later. Uh, the righteous and some said he descended for everybody. Okay, we'll unpack that in a few minutes. So let's look a little bit at the witness of the church fathers. Um, if we look at it, we're going to see a widespread acceptance of Christ's descent into hell. Irenaeus, who I just, I love Irenaeus. Um, he, uh, he lived from about, I think, 130 or so to uh, 200. He was... Uh, a disciple once removed from the Apostle John and uh, one of the earliest church fathers. This is what he said about the passage we just read, the Peter, 1 Peter 3, 
It was for this reason, too, that the Lord descended into the regions beneath the earth, preaching his advent there also, and declaring the remission of sins received by those who believe in him. Here we see an explicit reference to the gospel being proclaimed in hell by none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Hell is no longer a place of hopelessness, but one in which the dead can be saved through faith in Christ. That's Irenaeus. Clement of Alexandria, and I hardly knew where to stop here, but Christ descended and preached to the saints and to the Gentiles who lived outside the true faith. Hell for Clement was a place of reformation, which takes us back to one of our key points last week. Remember we talked about retributive versus restorative justice. Do you guys remember that? And because in the, uh, uh, in the Reformed tradition, the, for them the whole issue was the justice of God had to be satisfied. We talked a lot about that judicial worldview. That automatically led them to a retributive justice. Do you know what I mean by that word? It means you got to pay. Justice is about you got to pay. And I said that I believe that was a projection because that's like the universal human spirit is that guy did me in. He, he, he's got to pay, right? And so that was extended in uh, Reformed theology to God. Whereas restorative justice says it's not about punishment, it's about transformation. Remember we talked about that last week? So let me just say this again. Hell, or Hades, for Clement, was a place of reformation. Another church father, honestly, I'm just giving you a few. Cyril of Jerusalem, he lived in the 300s. Uh, in his lectures to the church, he taught Christ's descent into hell was to redeem the righteous. He said this, he was uh, truly laid as a man in a tomb of rock, but rocks were, but were rent asunder by terror because of him. He went down into the regions beneath the earth, that thence also he might redeem the righteous. Jesus, who descended into hell alone, but ascended with a great company. For he went down to earth, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose through him. Death was struck with dismay. On beholding a new visitant, was his word, uh, descend into Hades, who is not bound by the chains of that place. That is Cyril. If you want to treat yourself, read the church fathers. Let me give you a little bit of St. Augustine. Everybody here has heard of St. Augustine? Early 5th century, a giant. Uh, a Western father. There's Eastern fathers and Western fathers. And we'll talk about him again in a, a little later. But here's a quote from St. Augustine. It is established beyond question that the Lord, after he had been put to death in the flesh, descended into hell. 
For it is impossible to gainsay either that utterance of prophecy, you will not leave my soul in hell, an utterance which Peter himself expounds expounds in the Acts of the Apostles, lest anyone should venture to put upon another interpretation, or the words of the same apostle in which he affirms that the Lord loosed the pains of hell in which it was not possible for him to be held. Who therefore except an infidel will deny that Christ was in hell. Typical St. Augustine, he doesn't sugarcoat it, he just lays it right out there. Everybody's still with me? Okay. And by the way, I'm I'm aware, I'm sure there's a lot more, but I'm aware of at least 19 church fathers who wrote specifically about Christ's descent into hell. Is a variation to that or in addition to that, I want to just touch on a couple of little examples of early church liturgy. Now, you know that I believe liturgy is really important for us. I believe in, in real free flow worship and, and contemporary songs. But as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a man who brings out treasures both old and new. That's why when we finish at night, I'd like us to join with the rest of the church around the world in, in reading one of the creeds and why I liked us to do responsive psalms, etc. Okay, so here is a wonderful piece of early church liturgy. It's actually from the second century. That's the 100s. Okay, so here we go. I love this. The Lord, this is what they used to sing. The Lord, when he had clothed himself with man, arose from the dead and uttered this cry, I am the one that destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trod down Hades and bound the strong one. I carried off man to the heights of heaven. I am the one, says the Christ. Come then, all you families of men who are compounded with sin and receive forgiveness of sin. For I am your forgiveness. I am the Pascha of salvation. I am the lamb slain for you. I am your ransom. I am your life. I am your light. I am your salvation. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I will raise you up by my right hand. I am leading you up to the heights of heaven. And there I will show you the father from ages past. Could I have a hallelujah, somebody? Hallelujah! By the second century, Christ's descent into Hades was an inseparable part of Christian worship. Already in the second century, Christ's redemptive sacrifice was understood for all people without exception. Salvation not for the righteous only, but for all who have, according to what we just read, sullied themselves with sin. He says, come, be forgiven, be cleansed. After destroying death, vanquishing the enemy, trampling down hell, binding the strong man, the devil, Christ calls all to himself in order to grant forgiveness of sin and to lead them to the Father. I mean, is that a wonderful liturgical hymn or what? I'll just give you one little one before we move on. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tomb bestowing life. That's an early Eastern hymn, Easter hymn. 
This week's episode is once again brought to you by the Impact Nation's COVID-19 feeding program. As the pandemic shuts down nations across the globe, day laborers and migrant workers are already starving. I was speaking to several of our partners just this morning, and their stories are harrowing. In Uganda and Kenya, people are being beaten by police if they're found outside their homes. In other countries, there is no more fuel to cook food. Our partners have negotiated with local authorities to be allowed to bring aid to those in need. As a result, food is being delivered to thousands of hungry people. I was talking to my friend Richard this morning, and he told me of visiting a number of widows who live in a village in rural Uganda. One tiny house had 15 people living in it, all of them without any food. Another woman was trying to figure out how to make five liters of thin porridge last long enough to keep her family of six from starving. It's planting season in Uganda, but Richard discovered that many families were eating the seed that they're supposed to be planting because it was the only thing they had left. Now, we've just delivered two weeks of food to those families, and we have similar deliveries happening in many locations, but it's becoming clear that this is going to be a long-term problem. You know, our heart is always to find sustainable solutions, and we typically engage in strategies to help people become economically free. But everything's changed for the time being. Families need our help. They need your help. For as little as $25, you can feed a family for a week. Will you join us? Will you send Richard out for another delivery? Please, push pause in this podcast for just a moment and make your donation at impactnations.com feeding. Thank you for partnering with us. Together, we are rescuing lives. And now, back to the podcast. We got to take a few minutes and define our terms, okay? The uh, descent of Christ to hell is often called the harrowing of hell. You may have heard that expression. So number one... I told you, Sheol and Hades are exactly equal. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. What is it? Well, Hades shows up ten times in the New Testament, and it's simply this. It is the realm of the dead. They thought in those days it to be under the earth, or some thought it was under the sea. And it was where almost all wait for the end of time. The only exceptions we know of are Enoch and Elijah. Remember, Enoch was no more and Elijah up in the chariot. It is a place of conscious existence. Remember again the story in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. But remember about that story, which we'll talk about a little more later. Remember, it's a parable. It's a parable. It's not historical. It's a parable. Say parable. Parable. Thank you. So... Hades is like this place of waiting. And um, there's conscious awareness, but it's a place of waiting. Hell, here we go. Did you know there is no literal word in the entire New Testament for hell? Hell is an Anglo-Saxon word that was used centuries later by translators. And as we got into the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, it it became more and more dramatic. It took on more and more vivid imagery and shape. Um, One of the highlights was Dante's Inferno. And people think of it as if that's what the Bible says. It doesn't. Now, there is a word that is used... 11 times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and that is Gehenna. Have you guys all heard of that word? 
Gehenna is translated as hell. Again, it's quite a transliteration because there's no biblical word hell. But um, uh, it's used 11 times in the synoptics and once in the book of James. It was thought for a long time, and some of your commentaries will probably still say this, but it was thought uh, Gehenna was to be a dump that was used for burning refuse, refuse on the, outside the city. However, archaeologists can't find any sign of it, which is interesting, isn't it? Um, it was a metaphor. Gehenna was a metaphor for coming destruction. If you look closely when Jesus talked about it again and again and again, it's a metaphor for A.D. 70, for there is total destruction coming. Um, there was a great diversity of views on the meaning of Gehenna, Gehenna in the early church. However, our understanding uh, of Gehenna is made a lot more difficult by the total lack of any language of Gehenna in the earliest writings we have. Paul makes no reference to hell, zero. Um, John's Gospel, zero. The writings of the early church fathers. So, but clearly Jesus spoke about Gehenna. I'll give you a few verses and they're, we know them because we know the infernalist verses, you know, which in part goes back to our worldview right. of of justice needs to be retributive, right? So you know these ones. Uh, Mark 9, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. The classic from one of my favorite passages in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, from the sheep and the goats, then he will say to those that is left, you that are accursed... Um, sorry, I get distracted. <laughs> you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire. Now, t tonight we don't have time, but I want you to know that in the Greek, eternal doesn't mean eternal. <laughs> it is a set period of time. Okay, a very long set period of time, but it's a set period of time. But that's an aside, that's a freebie, we go into that another time. Now we can look at these passages in more detail another day, but let me say that we must remember, please remember this, Jesus taught much of the time in parables and metaphor, and as a man of the first century, he often used hyperbole. Do you all know what hyperbole is? Uh, exaggeration used for effect. Okay? Now, let me give you a couple of other scriptures on this theme, only from Paul. And they seem to present a restorative view of justice. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. As all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Romans 5, 18. Am I going too fast? Okay, Romans 5.18, just as one man's trespass led to the condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. And this one is maybe most interesting in, in light of our topic tonight. 
Romans 11.32, God has imprisoned all in disobedience that he may be merciful to all. Hmm. Let's all go, hmm. <laughs> Romans 11.32, God has imprisoned all in disobedience that he may be merciful to all. So, we looked at the Old Testament. We looked at the New Testament, some of the scriptures. We looked at defining our terms. Hades is a, is a place like a waiting place. There's, it's conscious, it's not, they're unconscious. And, but hell is an Anglo-Saxon word that is, uh, that's usually the translation for Gehenna. All right. And now we're going to look at three views of Christ's descent into hell. And like I did at the beginning, I want to contextualize this with a quote from a writer I like very much, Bishop Ware, W-A-R-E. It is important, therefore, to allow for the complexity of the scriptural evidence. It does not all point in the same direction. But there are two contrasting strands. Some passages present us with a challenge. God invites but does not compel. I possess freedom of choice. Am I going to say yes or no to the divine invitation? The future is uncertain. To which destination am I personally bound? Might I perhaps be shut out from the wedding feast? But there are other passages which insist with equal emphasis upon divine sovereignty. God cannot be ultimately defeated. All shall be well, and in the end God will indeed be all in all. Challenge and sovereignty, such uh, are the two strands in the New Testament, and neither strand should be disregarded. Truth intention. I've taught you this at different times over this past year. We evangelicals, we charismatic evangelicals, we do not live well with paradox, with truth intention. <laughs> we do not. And, um, and I'm not going to go down that road anymore tonight. But let me just say, there is paradox. Jesus' teaching is filled with paradox. Okay? So, is that my phone going off? Oh, okay. That's all right. I just didn't know if it was mine if that turned off. So, these are the two strands of the New Testament and neither strand should be disregarded. Christ, the protagonist, breaks the gates and the bars of Hades. He overpowers Satan and his demons and breaks their resistance. Christ then illumines Sheol with uh, his light he destroys death and opens the way for the dead to rise. That's the context. Now I'm going to give you three views. The first one is the Reform or Calvin view. John Calvin dismissed the descent of Christ into Hades. He not only ignored over a thousand years of doctrine, of deeply theological thinking, he called the descent a fable. Luther never did this. He continued to 
teach on the descent of Christ? Why would Calvin turn his back on the church fathers? And I would say, turn his back arrogantly. I read some quotes, and it just made me mad. <laughs> Why? Because of what I taught you last week. Calvin was locked into a PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement Framework, where in that framework, all that took place at the cross was a legal transaction between Jesus and the Father. Therefore, once that transaction took place, nothing else mattered. Everything mattered in that transaction right there. I've told you for the past few weeks that the cross is central to everything. By that, I mean all that took place on Friday, Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday. They all belong together. To ignore the teaching on Christ's descent into hell, Calvin brings a novel allegorical reading to the Apostles' Creed. Calvin's reading is a minority position, and it can be seen in the fact that Martin Luther embraced the traditional reading of the Apostles' Creed. The Anglican Church embraces it. And I'm just using Protestant examples. Of course, the, the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church did. The fact that we as evangelicals, I want you to think about this for a minute. The fact that we as evangelicals hear so little teaching, if any at all, on Christ's descent is a clear indication of just how predominant the Reform slash Calvin view is in the evangelical church. Where Protestantism puts the emphasis on the forgiveness of sins obtained transactionally through Christ's death on the cross, the traditional view embraced by Anglicans, Lutherans, Catholic, Orthodox, puts the emphasis not on the transaction, but on the defeat of sin, death, and the devil through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Last week I told you that's called Christus Victor. What saves us is not an event, but a person. You got that? What saves us is not an event, but a person. Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is a far richer and fuller picture of salvation. In Christ. So that's the Calvinist view. Here's the second view. Christ descended into hell as a triumphant king in order to proclaim his victory over sin, death, and the devil, to declare it to the saints who had died before him. He preached to the righteous saints who were being held in captivity in Hades, and he set them free. The Old Testament saints were liberated. For St. Augustine, we gave you a big long quote a few minutes ago, but he insisted that only those who followed Christ were liberated. There was no second chance. Everybody still tracking? So that's the second view? Yes. The third view is that Christ descended into Hades 
to proclaim his total victory of Satan and, uh, and death, but he came to declare it to everyone. For a high number of the Eastern Fathers, Christ entered Hades to liberate all from Hades and death. Now, even within this, there's two versions, two variations. Are you, you still with me? Calvin's view? Nope. Didn't happen. The second view, he went to uh, preach the gospel, to proclaim freedom to the righteous ones. This third one, he declared it to everyone. Okay? We're all tracking. We want to be really careful on this stuff. Now, within that, to everyone, there's two variations. A. Christ broke open the gates of hell and he led everyone out. B. Christ broke open the gates and invited everyone to follow him out, but we cannot know if there are those who chose not to believe his preaching and therefore not to follow him out. There is no consensus among the church fathers as to whether or not that rejection is permanent or can be eventually changed. I mean, one of the church fathers, Origen, who was the most radical in the view, he insisted because Christ reconciled all things. He, everything is under his feet. Everything is everything. So he said, eventually it must be. But there isn't a consensus. There's two camps on that. All right? Now, let's talk a little bit about Christus Victor and Christ's descent. Number one, last week we contrasted the judicial transactional view of PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement, that's why I just say PSA. Um, we, we contrasted that with Christus Victor. That, that the message of Christus Victor is that Christ defeated the enemy at the cross. And I said that what happened at the cross was he reversed all of creation from death being at work to from that moment on to divine life being at work. We talked about the cross as an axis of love. And I gave you a metaphor. I said all of the cosmos rotates around that, finds its purpose, its meaning, its existence in that axis of love. Remember we talked about that last week? Okay. Christ... Here's the victorious part. Christ does not simply descend into the depths of Hades to be with us, to comfort us, to identify with us. No, Christ descends in order to invade it. And he vanquishes Satan and the demons, and he smashes open the gates of hell. Christ does not descend as a victim, but as a victor. And here's part of my own personal process. Some of you who have had to listen to me for years, you know that I've said canonic love, self-emptying, self-giving love, love that doesn't, that doesn't grasp anything. This is the greatest revelation of God. You've heard me say that a bunch of times, some of you. And I don't back away at all from that. But truth and tension, paradox. At the same time, what I'm seeing is he did not descend to Hades as a victim but as a victor. Okay? 
Number two, by descending into Hades, Christ did not destroy the devil as a personal living creature. That's going to happen at his second coming at the summing up of all history, right? But he abolished the power of the devil. That is, he deprived the devil of authority and power that was stolen by him from God. When, when Satan rebelled against God, he set himself the task to create his own kingdom, right? right. We know that. And so that to me means that there would be a place where he would be the master, a space where God's presence could not uh, be felt. In the Old Testament understanding, this place was called Sheol. But after Christ, Sheol or Hades became a place of divine presence. Now, I was thinking a lot last week about this parable I've referred to, Rich Man and Lazarus. It's a parable. But we see a picture of the rich man in pain and the poor man in reward. And I think what Jesus is saying, that is what Sheol is like. But we're seeing a picture of Hades before he descended, that everything changed when he descended. Isn't that interesting? It's part of why I've been thinking this week about Matthew 20, the parable of the landowner. The last shall be first. So when Jesus told the parable, the rich man was in Hades, where the door was locked and where the devil held the key. But with the resurrection of Christ, the door and its keys are now under new management. He, behold, I hold the keys to death in Hades, right? That's Christus Victor. Thirdly, Jesus was speaking prophetically and, as usual, somewhat enigmatically when he said in Matthew 12, 29, For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. The devil had had the power of death. He was the strong man, and he owned Hades. He owned the house of death, if you like. But he only owned it until the victorious Christ descended into hell and set the captives free. After that, everything changed. Death changes. The grave changes. Hades is broken open, trampled down, and plundered of its prisoners. Something shifted on, on what the Orthodox and Catholic Church call Holy Saturday. Something shifted. As I said to you last week, before the cross, death was at work in all creation. And now, recreation, divine life is at work. And it started right there. So let me finish this. I gave you an awful lot tonight. Tonight we opened up something that, that for most of you is quite new. And I purposely focused on Scripture 
and what the early church fathers and the early church tradition has historically said, rather than do a lot of teaching my opinions. Obviously, although I have not directly addressed it purposely, a huge issue that each of us must decide on by studying the scriptures is one, to whom did Christ preach the gospel in Hades? To the Old Testament saints or to everyone? And two, if he preached it to everyone, does this mean there is an opportunity beyond death to respond to him? I recently heard someone say that's a very modern idea. No, it isn't. It goes, it goes back to just after one, about 110 A.D. So I finished. I told you that, that I've, just, I've just been immersed in this. And I've got all kinds of shifts going on in me. And, and I wonder what I'm gonna, where I'm going to be on this in a year from now because I've traveled so far in the last year. And, and so I want to just finish by sharing my heart. I'm not teaching you now. You know, I, I, like Paul says to the Corinthians, this isn't the Lord speaking but me, right? But I, I feel like I just want you to know how alive this has been to me. Uh, it's, I've, I've been on and off kind of emotional. I, I told Margaret that the other day. As I was walking today, it's like I just started to see things. And I, I'm, again, this is me. I'm just opening up as to why this is all mattering so much for me, okay? Because remember, I told you, even the church fathers were, were kind of split as to, did he preach it to everyone or just to the, the righteous? But I want you to picture Sheol because it is not the place of torment, an eternal fire. It's not infernalist, okay? You can believe me what I told you, what shale, what Hades means. It's that place of waiting. And I was thinking as I walked of David, he said, you will not abandon my soul to shale. And it's a place of waiting and waiting and waiting. And who knows how many hundreds of thousands, millions are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and I just, I just got that. It hit me in waves. They're just waiting and waiting in this shadow lands. How long, O oh Lord? Remember, Christ is the interpretive key for the Old Testament and the Psalms. How long, O oh Lord? He says, I'm waiting and waiting, but I'm going to believe. I still believe you're not going to abandon me to Sheol. You're not going to leave me here. And then it's like I pictured this whole thing, just like this, this stirring, this distant sound, and it gets louder and louder and louder. And suddenly what we have is Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now there's this incredible thing happening. Who is this King of glory? The Lord mighty in battle. And this victorious Christ 
He leads them out. He leads the captives out. He breaks the the gates. Revelation says he breaks the gates. Again in the Psalms, they talk about the bars of bronze. They're broken. And suddenly, victorious king, what is this great salvation? Surely it's more than a transaction. This great salvation and and all of captivity is now before the throne. I know they are. I don't know why I know, but today I know. And they can't help but holy, 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 who was and who is and who is to come. Behold the Lamb of God. And that's where I've been. And that's where I've been. And that's where this has taken me. And that's where this has taken me. You need to go and make your own conclusions from Scripture. Your own conclusions from the church fathers. Your own conclusions from church worship and hymns and liturgy. You've got to make your own conclusions. I can't tell you what to believe. I can only tell you this is where I am. Are we done? No, not yet. No, okay. 20%. So, whew, that's about as excited as I've got on these podcasts. But it's so deep. Let's pray and then I'll say goodbye to all of those who are listening. Begin to pursue the scripture. We live in the time of Google. Begin to Google the the church fathers. Begin to to enter into the richness of our history. Again, that is why I I say the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the the worship. We've been called, don't you know you've been called to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the church of the firstborn? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the history that we have. Oh, I got to stop teaching, but I can hardly stop. So Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the truth, the paradox of your self-emptying, canonic love. And your victory, your total, complete victory. We love you, Lord Jesus. Speak deeply into our spirits. Amen. Amen. That concludes another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Next week, we'll be joined by Brad Jerzak for our third and final discussion in this series on the cross. If you have questions for Steve or Brad, email them to podcast at impactnations.com and we'll be sure to discuss them. Better yet, if you'd like to join us live, we'll be recording that episode on Wednesday, April 15th at 9.30 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time. You can tune in at impactnations.com slash family. We'll even be taking audience questions live during the broadcast, so don't miss it. Finally, if you haven't yet had an opportunity to give toward our COVID-19 feeding program, please consider how you might be able to contribute. Visit impactnations.com feeding to learn how you can rescue a family from starvation today. Thanks and have a great week.